Let's learn. Let's learn. Okay, we are in the partios of the building of the Mishkan. Last week, which again, we did not have a chance to get together, was Parshios Truma, because this year we have two others. So everything is usually sometimes they're doubled up. We do Truma and Tetzaveh together, and then we do Vayakot Pekude together. So we only have two weeks in which we read about the Mishkan. But a year like this, in which we have two separate others, each of those parshas are separate. So last week was just Truma, and then we're going to do Tetzaveh. The parsha of Truma last week was about the building of the the structure of the Mishkan, the Kalim, the vessels, the menorah, the Mizbeach, the Shulchan, all of the different components, the walls uh, of the Mishkan. This week's Parsha Tetzaveh focuses primarily on the construction of the clothing, the begadim of the Kohanim and the Kohen Gadol. And, but all of these two Parshas, last week and this week, are the instructions in which Hashem tells Moshe, this is what we're going to do. We're going to build a Mishkan, we're going to have clothing for the Kohanim, of the Kohen Gadol, and this is how it's going to function. And then, next week's parsha, I will not be here, but there will be a Shir Mirz Hashem. Next week's parsha is the Chet Egel, the sin of the Golden Calf is in the middle, and then I'll be in Israel next week. And then, the next two parshas, Vayakal and Pekude, are the actual doing of the constructing. One parsha all about the construction of the Mishkan, and then the parsha constructing about the clothing of the... So it's really divided up into four entire parshios. This year we get four weeks, four weeks of it. So uh, as we're in the midst, this is week two, uh, two of that, two of the four. So what I'd like to do is uh, a brief thought really that more relevant to last week, but relevant to the entire discussion of the building of the Mishkan. We'll start with that, and then two ideas from our parsha, Parshas Tetzaveh, um, to, uh, to take us through for today. How was the Mishkan constructed? Meaning, where did the funds come from? You want to build a building, so everybody knows, if you want to build a building... Yeah, someone's got to pay for it. You got to have a fundraiser. You got to have a capital campaign. So last week, as we begin this endeavor of building the Mishkan, we have the first ever recorded Jewish capital campaign to construct the Mishkan. So there's a lot to learn from the first capital campaign. This was not just any building. We're building the Mishkan. We're building Hashem's home, the place in this world that His presence, His Shechina, will be able to reside, which will later, of course, be in a more permanent version in the Beis HaMikdash in Yerushalayim, many hundreds of years later, after the Jews enter into the land of Israel, about 400 years after that, they'll build the Beis HaMikdash, which will stand for 400 or so, uh, 400 or so years. So here we have the first capital campaign. Last week, we begin this process, which again is continued this week, last week. So here's the question that I would ask you. If you were the executive director of such a capital campaign, and I'm sure this conversation has played itself out in boardrooms and board meetings throughout the centuries, and like, okay, how are we going to raise from the congregation? How are we going to raise the funds to construct this building? Let's say the shul was in disrepair and needed a renovation or you wanted to build from scratch. Okay, so we got to read it. And you had two voices were going to eventually emanate from the midst of the discussions around uh, around the boardroom. The first voice would say something along the lines like this. We should just do a building fund assessment that every member gets hit up with and it's going to be a, a flat-out fee. We could take the number of members that we have here, the number of member units. This is the amount that we need. Divide it up. Everybody gets the same assessment. And we'll pay it out over two years, three years, whatever it may be. And that voice would emanate. That way we know what's coming. We know that here's our membership. Everybody should have an equal share. Everybody should be involved. 
And uh, that's the way that we should. That's one voice that comes out of the boardroom in terms of how it should be done. The other voice says, no, 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 no. We don't want to like, have this even uh, across the board because we have some bigger donors who have greater capabilities amongst their congregation. So instead of just putting an even assessment on everyone, why don't we open it up? And we'll, you know, solicit, and we have, we'll have naming rights for all the various components of, uh, of, the, of the building, and let those who are able uh, give what they're able. And that way, well, we don't know exactly what's coming, but okay, let's do it that way anyway. And those are the two voices you can imagine. I'm sure this has played out all, throughout all the centuries. As to, so in this very first building campaign, so if you were Moshe and you were trying to set out, like, how should we raise the funds for the Mishkan? Which one of those two approaches would you think would be more uh, appropriate, or which one did he, would, would he want to go with as far as raising the funds to be able to build a Mishkan? Should we do a flat assessment across the board, even for all of the Jewish people, or should we have an open campaign and allow anybody to give what it is that they want to give in order to be able to construct a Mishkan? Which one would you choose? Black. Open campaign. Open campaign. Okay, new. And why? But you really need a combination. You need to... Uh, oh, okay, very good. Hold on. Hold on, very good. Why do you say an open campaign? So those that can afford it, Those who can't afford it should give more. Give a little bit. Okay, do anybody hold that it should be an even assessment? Give me the reason why. Because they're all in the same boat, but We should all be in the same boat. We should do it. I don't know that that's true. When they came out of Mitzrayim... It, it wasn't like a, a, a socialist or communist situation in which they all ended up leaving Mitzrayim with exactly the same and they divided. And we don't have any record or any reason to assume. The Torah uses the words Ashir, the Hadal, the wealthy, the poor. Okay, so that, right, everyone has the same part, even though they don't have the same finances, but they should all have the same. And those would be the two voices, whether or not giving everybody a chance, let the wealthy shoulder the burden more, and let everybody be equal. I have a question. Aside from whatever jewelry and items they were able to take with them from Egypt, what other possible source of commerce was there in the Midbar for... So, so we, we do find there was some basic commerce. They, in their travels throughout the desert, they traveled not far from settled areas. And we have various sort of, well, they would either have been able to buy food, clothing. Like they could have done stuff. But whether or not it was a, uh, a, a robust economy, clearly not. They weren't, you know, from within their own camp as they traveled. There didn't seem to be much commerce. The mud fell from heaven, so you had all of your food needs. Your clothing was taken care of, the, the sages say. So there wasn't much need of commerce. But uh, they were close enough that they could have. So how could there have been any redistribution where everybody could have so, we mean where they get their money from? Yeah, so they left Mitzrayim, so we found, two, we found two sources for where they would have had anything. When they left Mitzrayim, they asked um, and borrowed from the Egyptians all sorts of clothing, gold, so the Torah lists that. And at the Yamsuf, after the sea split and the uh, Egyptians were drowned, the, the Sukkim described, as do the sages, that the Egyptians had come with a chariot, all sorts of things that adorned um, their thing, and that they were like sort of washed up. There was a, what's known as the Bizas Hayam, the sages described. The, the, the bounty of the sea was even greater than what they left Mitzrayim with. And so there's 
Clearly, throughout the desert, we have this language of people had stuff. Not only do they have stuff, but the, the collection that was taken, what did they need in order to construct the Mishkan and the clothing for the Kohanim? They needed 13 items, only three of which were precious metals, gold, silver, and copper. The rest were stones, wood, tachash skins, animal skins, dyed, threads, oil, spices. There were all these 13 items that needed to be contributed and they, they clearly had them. I will add parenthetically, just because you asked the question, one of the items is uh, atse shitim, um, cedar wood. Uh, acacia wood, I think, is the way that it's actually uh, translated. This acacia wood, which was needed for the major construction of the Arun, was made out of wood and then gold-plated. So that the sages were very troubled with. The fact that they had oil or certain skins, threads, gold and silver even, we can see where they got there from. Where in the world did they get this acacia wood in the desert? How did they have that to contribute? So the Medjah is very good. A number of scholars in the room. So Rashi quotes from the Gemara, which was troubled by this, that Yaakov, Yaakov Avinu, when he came down to Egypt 210 years prior to the Exodus, when Yaakov came down with his family 210 years prior, the language is Tzipo Beruach HaKodesh saw with the divine inspiration that they were going to need this in the desert 210 years later. So he brought with him from Canaan, he brought with him this wood, Unitatam, and he planted it in uh, Mitzrayim. And this is the language that Rashi quotes from the sages. Vitziva Levanov. And he commanded his sons, take these with us. When we leave, you're going to need these. That's the language of the sages as quoted in Rashi. I may have said this in past years. I I happen to find that comment from the sages so, so powerful. I'll tell you why. On the one hand, they're they're answering a question, like where did did you get the wood from? Okay, the gold, the silver, the skins, the threads, we could could figure that out. Where did they get the wood from? Uh, You know? Um, and there, this answer, this answer that they, that Yaakov brought it. So think about what, what they're saying. Yaakov comes down to Mitzrayim 210 years later. He's leaving Canaan. He's leaving the homeland. He's leaving the land of Israel and he's going into exile. And what does he do when he goes into exile? He, he takes a tree and he plants it. And then what does he tell his children? He tells his children, when we leave here, because we don't belong here, this is not our home, we're going to go home. When we go home, take take these with you. And then those children teach their children those trees in the backyard. When we leave here, take them with us, we're going to need them. And so that every generation in Mitzrayim will look out their windows at this growing tree, and it would be this reminder of, this is not our home. We are in exile, but we have a home, and we're going back. And when Hashem takes us out of here, take those trees. Tend to them, grow them, but then cut them down because we're going to need them for something else. And that insight of the sages is a Jew in exile. We live here. We should be comfortable, we should have nice homes and nice schools and shuls and all of that thing, everything. But there should be something, so to speak, out the window that we teach to our children and we say, this is temporary. 
I don't know if it's going to be this year or next year or the year after that. But this is not our home. This is not the land that Hashem has given us to live in. While we're here, okay, take that with us when we go. There's never a sense of like, I'm here permanently. This is my place. No, 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 no. It's always a sense of, until we're here, take care of that. Because when we leave, we're taking it with us. It's, it's the way that we live. It's the way that we live in exile. It's the way that a Jew, we've experienced it for 2,000 years. And again, we said this 100 times. We'll say it 100 more times. We are witnessing the greatest miracle in world history that a nation that has been exiled from its home for 2,000 years has returned home. There's not another people in the history in the world who can say that they've been exiled for 2,000 years and came home. This just doesn't exist. There's no such people. There's no such thing. And the way that we do that is, as Yaakov said, because every generation, we do this in our own way. We don't do it with trees in our backyard. We do it with a broken glass at every single wedding. We do it at the end of every single Pesach Seder, which ends, Shana Habav Yerushalayim. We do it on Tishabov every year, mourning the destruction, waiting to go home. Yom Kippur ends every single year, Shana Habav Yerushalayim. The, again, I'm, I'm just pointing out, these are things which we like, don't take it for granted. Recognize what it is that we're doing with stepping on a glass at a wedding. L'shana above Yerushalayim at every Seder, every Tish above, every Yom Kippur is what Yaakov told us. When you live in exile, you, you have something that says, I live here now, but I can't wait to go home. I can't wait to go home. <laughs> take care of these trees, he would say to his children. You're going to need them when we leave here. And that's, that's how we've gone through. And we're witnessing, again, the return home. We're almost halfway there. Half the Jewish population has returned to the land of Israel, as you know. We're the other half, by the way. We're, we're the other half. We're waiting to go home. So whenever the time is right, whenever the time is right for all of us, Mitzvah Hashem. Okay. Any case, um, well, oh, so we're in the middle of the discussion. So what kind of fundraising should you do? I got distracted. I'm sorry. Well, what, kind of, what kind of fundraising should we do? Should we have a across-the-board a uh, building assessment fee for everyone, or should we have an open-ended donation as you see fit? By the way, one last thing before I get back to answering that question. This capital campaign, except for those three items of gold, silver, and copper, all the other items were actual items, the skins and the threads and the oil and the spices. So when you donated them, like in our capital campaign, in our, in our world today, if, you have, if you're asked to contribute to anything, whether it's some school, yeshiva in Israel, or a building campaign here, you write a check. This campaign was, take the chair out of your house. We need the oil. We need the spices. We need this. You literally, it wasn't just writing a check. You were giving your stuff, the things that you had, I contribute to the Mishkan. I want to give this to Hashem's house that he should have a place. It's a totally different form of the way that we, uh, we do that. A lot of people do pro bono work or they have a factory or come, but like literally the people are taking things out of their house and bringing it to, to the Mishkan. Anyway, so what does Hashem choose? Which way does he want to raise funds for his Mishkan? So somebody said it? Both, of course. The answer is always both. It's always both. The answer is both. There were three components of the way that the Mishkan was built. One was a chatzi shekel assessment across the board. Every single Jew gave a chatzi shekel. And one of that, the first chatzi shekel collection went for the adanim, which were the sockets, the silver sockets at the base of the wall of the Mishkan. The sockets were made of the uh, same kind of silver, two holes, and then the walls had planks with pegs, and they would go into the, uh, into the sockets around. That was the first chatzi shekel. Then you gave a second chatzi shekel, 
You didn't give a full shekel. You gave two half shekel, a half shekel once, then you gave a half shekel a second time. The second half shekel went to the public communal korbanos, the korbanet zibor. There was, every morning there was a korban that was brought in the morning, and then every late afternoon was the last korban that was brought. Where did those public, every Shabbos was a korban musaf, was a communal korban, meaning sometimes you'd go to the base of Mikdash, and an individual would say, I want to bring a korban, I want to bring a korban toad, I want to give a gift of thanks, I want to bring a korban chatas, I did something wrong, I mistake. Flip down a light on Shabbos, I forgot. I need to bring a korban, a sin offering. That's an individual coming. But then there were communal offerings. There was one korban musaf brought for the entire nation. Well, who paid for that? So it wasn't like a lunch and learn where every day somebody would say, okay, I have today. That's not how it worked. I'm sponsoring today's korban musaf. Today was sponsored by the so-and-so. No, no, no. Everyone gave a half a shekel once a year. And then from those half shekel, they had a collection and then they would take from that collection every time they needed it to buy an animal for, so that you had a, a chilek, a, a portion of each thing that was done. Those were the two half shekels. Then, after everybody gave a half shekel, even across the board assessment, then the rest was an open donation. Whatever you want. Anyone whose heart motivated him, whose spirit wanted to contribute from the rest, the gold, the silver, the copper, the skins, the oil, the spices, all of those things were whatever you wanted. There's no set amount. You don't have any oil. Don't give any oil. You have a lot of oil. You want to give a little bit? Okay. You have a little. You want to give a lot of it? That was whatever you wanted. So there were two different, two different, components, uh, two different components of that. I know okay. They could have had a guest of honor. Could have had a guest of honor. That would raise a lot of money. Yeah. Probably they would have chosen Moshe. I don't know. Everyone would have been like, it's always Moshe. Why are we always honoring Moshe? So I don't know. But the, yeah, there, it is of note. It is of note that in the very first capital campaign in Jewish history, there was no guest of honor. It is true. That is, uh, that is true. Okay. Anyway, that was just a, an introductory comment from Parshish Chuma. Really, that was uh, last week's Parsha. Rashi tells us what I just taught you. Uh, in, the, in the very first Rashi in Parshas Truma. Let's go to our Parsha this week, Parshas Titzave. Um, Parshas Titzave is on page 464. Um, as I mentioned, except for the first three psukim, the entirety of the Parsha addresses the construction of the clothing, the begadim of the Kohanim and the Kohen Gadol. The Kohen Gadol had an additional four garments. A regular Kohen had four. A Kohen Gadol had eight. Um, and that is what is discussed for uh, the majority, uh, 95% of the parsha. The very first three psukim in the parsha address this specific mitzvah of lighting the menorah. Since this is what we're talking about, the constructing of the menorah and the clothing that the Kohanim wear. Um, so the parsha opens with a three-pasuk introduction, not talking about constructing vessels for the Mishkan or the clothing, but how to light the menorah. So uh, let's learn that. Let's focus on uh, those three psukim. It's, uh, it's, it's actually two psukim. I apologize. The first two psukim. Let's start. Page 464. Uh, let's begin with that. Um, and now you shall command the children of Israel. You should just note, even before we get any farther, who's the v'ata? Who's, who's Hashem speaking to? Moshe. Moshe. Moshe And you, Moshe, you should command. This parsha does not have Moshe's name in it. There's no name of Moshe. The, the closest that we get to Moshe is this discourse. You, you should command the Jewish people to do the following. But Moshe's name is not in here. And the uh, commentators point out that's actually a fulfillment of something that Moshe is going to say in the next week's parsha at the sin of the golden calf, when Moshe is going to be beseeching Hashem for mercy to forgive the Jewish people. He like almost threatens him. He says, you have to forgive them. And if not... 
erase my name from your book. Erase me. Um, so as often things go, like, that's what you want. There'll be a way in. I won't erase you from the book. But the parsha immediately preceding that comment, indeed, Moshe's name does not appear anywhere in this parsha. The only reference that he has is, so to speak, uh, which appears, you see, just a few psukim later. But Moshe's name does not, uh, does not appear. Okay, in any case, where else does Moshe's name notably not appear? We're in the month of Adar, so we're getting close. The Haggadah. The Haggadah, which is a story of the Exodus, which one would think, again, speaking of the guest of honor, like if there was a guest of honor who, who should get prominent uh, press time uh, in our Seder, uh, it would be none other than Moshe. Moshe is not mentioned in the Haggadah. The only place that Moshe is mentioned is in the middle of, I can't remember if it's in like, in Hallel, like in a quoting apostle, like some, like, it's like snuck in, like that. But as far as the story, as far as Magid, when we tell over the story of Yitzhiya Smachayim at our Seder, Moshe is not really mentioned and not really uh, part of that. The, you could speak about this at your Seder, but the, at, at its core, that really is because the story of the, the Seder is about Anivelo Malach, Anivelo Sarf. It is I Hashem, it is not through an angel. It's, it's, it's Hashem focused on, on that which is what all the Holy Antiv is about. And so Moshe's name really does not even. Uh, does not even really appear in the story of the Haggadah. Okay, back to our Pesukim. You, Moshe, will command B'nai Yisrael v'ikhu elecha shemen zayis zach. And you will take for you a pure shemen zayis, an olive oil. That zach is pure. It's kosis lamor. It is crushed or pressed um, in order to be ready for illumination, the ha'alos ner tamid, in order to kindle the ner tamid. There is like so many things to comment on this passage. So what's the basic idea of this passage? We have the command of lighting the menorah. What do we light the menorah with? Olive oil. Not just any olive oil, it has to be a pure olive oil. Not just a pure olive oil, but it's a kosis. So the, the sages describe, like, when, you know, in order to get oil out of the olive, you have to really, uh, you, you squeeze it. You got to squeeze the olive. You got to press it, right? An olive press, the famous olive press. I'm sure you've been to Israel, you find even like in the days of old where they would have these big stones and they would crush the olives in order to be able to get. So in the Beis HaMikdash and in the Mishkan, it had to only be the very first drop that would come out. But pure olive oil needs a crushing of the uh, of the olives, in order in order that uh, the lamp should be continuously lit. Rashi points out a number of important things. Number one, continuously, that it needs to be a ner tamid. Now there's this idea that comes from here that every shul, we're, not, we're like one room over, but every shul you've ever been in has right above the aron, and a ner tamid. Where does that come from, that idea of having a ner tamid? So you can see in the, in the, his, in the um, moving through, uh, through history, and let's call it uh, fire safety developments, older shuls actually had a flame. You remember growing up, you had, like, there was a flame in the front of the shul. My, in the shul uh, where I was coming from in Atlanta, they had like a, a, a gas line that literally ran, like, ran up the side of the wall, and there was a, a flame, so that it was a huge, build, it was like very high up, and you could see the, like, the black suit 
like straight up the top of the Aron from 50 years of this continuous. So today you never get away with it. There's not a shul, any shul that's been built in the last, like probably 40, but there's some of the old shuls. We don't have Baltimore's, but it's like it's a like grandfathered in, I'm sure. Totally redesigned. I mean, maybe grandfather. Yeah. So anyway, all shuls now, they have fancy light bulbs, candles, artwork. You've, I've seen, you've seen it all. You almost never actually see a fire anymore. I think that's for good reason. But the idea of the Nair Tamid was a reflection of the Nair Tamid. There were a couple of different, there were some continuous fires on the Mizbeach. And that's the language that's used here with the menorah is a Nair Tamid, which is different than the Mizbeach, which also had a continuous fire on the Mizbeach itself. But in any case, the menorah is called the menorah didn't burn 24 hours a day. Rashi points out the menorah burnt madlik uh, from from kol laila vilaila. You would you would light it at night and it would burn until till the morning. And there was a specific amount of oil that it needed. That was it. So why is that called tamid? Rashi asks. It wasn't actually a 24 hour, there was a 24 hour fire on the mizbeach again, which is really where our shuls come from. The menorah, which is called a ner tamid a continuous perpetual light, is actually only lit every night, and then it would be go to the morning. That was it. So Rashi says a beautiful idea. Rashi says anything that is lit consecutively, um, consistently, you know, at the same time, always, is called tamid. That's called tamid. Korban tamid, right? Every morning is brought, and every afternoon is called tamid. Kol, Laila, Vilaila, Kari, Tamid. That's also called Tamid. And that is such a beautiful idea. You know, sometimes we think about, like, if I want to always do something, it means I'm, I'm literally always doing it. A person, let's talk an example, like in, uh, a guy in yeshiva wants to be learning. Or a, a guy's out of yeshiva, he wants to be learning. If I have a, a five minutes that I learn Mishnah after davening every day, I sit for five minutes and I learn a Mishnah. But every day I learn for five minutes. Or every Wednesday I come for a 12 of Every Wednesday I come. There's a concept like, like that is tamid. It's consistent. It's always. It's not literally always 24 hours a day. But there's a concept that when you're consistent and persistent and it happens and you don't let things get in the way and you do it, even if you're only doing it part of the day, if you always do it, there's a sense of consistency. And there's a value, tremendous value, a set time to say Tehillim, a set time to Davin, a set time to learn a little bit, a set time to doing chasa, to visiting, calling people. I always do it. I make sure that I do it now. That's also called a little bit, uh, a little bit tamid. Makum Kavua, we have the same idea of like set places, set times. You know, there's a, we're people, this is one of the, we talk about those balances, like the, the same way we have balance in two different types of campaigns. You need like a you know, a set assessment and do whatever you want. We also need to be balanced between things that are set and things that are different. If everything in our life is by rote, everything is always set, so then it loses, it loses some flavor, loses the spontaneity, loses the energy. So you need to be a little bit spontaneous sometimes. And you need to have a balance, a balance between a life that has structure, that keeps us grounded, and within the structure, you know, we do, uh, we do different things to keep things, uh, keep things uh, fresh as they, uh, as they go. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the olive oil. There's an, uh, there's an amazing medrash, which uh, ties into everything that we are going through in our, in our world today and, and in Eretz Yisrael. The Jewish people are often referred to or are compared to shemen zayis, to olive oil. 
And the Medrash says, V'nim shlu Yisrael l'shem. And we find in, in various, uh, in Shir Hashirim, Mishlei, where just a lot of references of olive oil to the Jewish people. So the Medrash says, why are the Jewish people always compared to and referred to uh, olive oil? So the Medrash says a couple of things. Ma shemen ein mishtabeach ela al ketisha. The greatest quality of oil can only come out through being crushed, through being pressed. There's no way to get that which is inside out. Some things are available and accessible in its value as is. Other things, the great value of the olive is, as much as uh, people might like olives on their pizza and olives in other areas, but the greatest value of the olive is actually the oil inside. And how do you get the oil inside? So you got to press it. you, you got to force it out. So the sages say, you know, the Jewish people, ain osin teshuva ela al in the same way as the oil needs to be pressed to get it out, the Jewish people were stiff-necked people. We do the same thing. When, when life is smooth and everything is easy and everything is good, so we are in cruise control. But we don't necessarily reflect the great value of what we have in those circumstances. Sometimes, not sometimes, unfortunately, many times, because of that, so when you want to get the good quality out, you got to exert a little bit of pressure. you got to press. And then what comes out when you press? Then you get that pure olive oil comes out. This is a... I'm saying, I wouldn't say this, I'm saying from the sages. Just using what, what's going on as an example. It's, it's, it's hard to say these things because of the pain and suffering that's going on. So I'm, again, I'm using it through the words of the sages. If you remember the months leading up to uh, the war. So what was the state of the Jewish people, the Jews in Israel particularly? Right, it, was, it was horrible. It was just so politically divided. The language of milchemet achim. A civil war was bantered around in a way that was like hard. Again, I'm on the outside. I'm not living there. I'm not in it. But just hearing that language, milchemet achim, and whether or not, I, I think it, it was so bad. I, I think sometimes people meant it literally. Like there was going to be war and fighting in the streets. There were protests and they were getting, it was horrible, right? And then we got crushed. Literally. Right? We got crushed. And what happens when we got crushed? What, what, you know, it's like, it's the story of our people. And it's as if, like, Hashem says, I, I, we've been through this before. If you don't want to do it on your own, I know, you're, I know it's in there. I know that the unity, I know that the love, I know that the purity, I know that the essence of the Jews is there. But if you're not going to express it on your own... I'm, I'm going to make it come out because it's there and it has to be here. So sometimes we need to be pressed. Sometimes just a little bit of pressing will get the first drop out and sometimes, sometimes it's deep inside. And if you want to get the juice that's deep in there, you really got to gotta crush it. But it's not just the last four months. This is like the story of our people. It's been many, many times over the same, the same story. So the measures, we're compared to olive oil because that's really who we are. That's really the, the, that sweet, pure oil inside. It's just sometimes in order to get it, sometimes in order to get it, it needs to be, uh, it needs to be crushed. The Medrash continues, Uma shemen, ein misarev bisha'ar mashkin. Oil does not mix with other liquids. You can try all you want. You can shake it. You can spin it. Do whatever you want. 
And it looks like, oh, I got it mixed. And what always happens? It always separates. It always separates. The Medjur says, you know, this again is a story. The Jew wants to fit in. They want to be normal. They want to look the same. They want to act the same. They want to be like everybody else. And Hashem says, you're not like everybody else. Not from the very first moment of our creation. Not until now. We are different. We have a different mission. We have a different goal. We, have, we, we are different. We're Hashem's people. And oil doesn't mix. You can shake it and try but at the end of the day, it'll always separate out. And as much as we try, and if we want, and America has been known, uh, you know, America's been a disaster for the Jewish people. You know, it's been very safe overall, considering what went on in Europe. But if you talk about the numbers of Jews lost, uh, you know, uh, to assimilation since the, the turn of the century, the numbers are uh, frightening. And as much as we try to meld in, World events will always remind us that we are oil in a world of other liquids, and it just separates it. And the last four months have been astounding how fast it happened. It's, it's mind-blowing how in four months, in four months, like the whole world is talking about Israel and the Jews, and there's not even any hiding the difference between Israel, Jew, just a Jew is a Jew is identified, and... Um, it's, uh, it's, it's astounding. But that, the Medrash said, you know, 1,500 years ago, the Jew is like oil. And oil does not mix. It just, it always becomes separate. It always becomes different. But the Medrash then says one last thing, but just like the oil brings light to the world. The Jewish people are going to bring light to the world, a world filled with so much darkness, a world that might need to get that oil, might need a little pressing and crushing to get the oil out. And that oil might try to mix in as much as he wants, as much as she wants, but the oil will always be separated, will always be identified, will always be different. It will always rise to the top. And it will provide the light for the world. So those are the two qualities of oil. It always is going to rise. And no matter how much you try to push it down, no matter how much you try to mix it up, it will always separate and rise. And that is the source of the light. The source of the light for the world in a world, again, that's filled with so much darkness. Sometimes in order to get that oil out, it needs to be crushed a little bit. But once it comes out, it will not mix. It will rise to the top and it will bring light to the world. So all of those beautiful thoughts from this idea that the menorah that's uh, lit in the Mizbech is, the, uh, is from the Shem and Zayis. Okay, one last thing. We've got we to touch on one more, uh, one more point still. That's what's going to happen. Okay, so then the, uh, the, language, the language that's used is La'alos ner tamid, the first pasuk. Um, this Shem and Zayis, you're going to take this pure olive oil, La'alos ner tamid, to cause it to... Um, to, uh, to rise up. So Rashi says on the words leha'alos, that you should cause it to rise, is madlik when, when Aaron would take the candle that he had lit and would put it to the wick of the menorah, he had to do so until the new flame burns on its own. So you leave the flame that's lit, like when you light Shabbos candles or, uh, or menorah Hanukkah. So you put the flame on the new wick until the new wick is ignite it on its own, and then you can remove yours. So what's the idea behind that? That when you, when you have a candle, and a candle can spread light, and a candle can spread light, but it's not just that I'm shining light on something else, 
It's that I'm making the other thing lit on its own. This is the idea behind chinuch, all of education. It's not just to shine light on a child so that now he can see or she can see, but that I want the child to be lit up so that they themselves are their own source of light, so that you can remove the Rebbe, you can remove a parent, and the child has everything that they need on their own. They don't need me anymore. If they're only using my light, then as long as the Rebbe is there providing light, the child can see. But then if the parent disappears, if the Rebbe disappears, it's dark again. No, no, that's not the goal of education. The goal of education is not to give light to the child so you can see it, so that the child's lit on their own, so then you could remove the source of the light and then we're good. That child is on their own, they could give it to the next generation. So that's the idea, beautiful idea that Rashi expresses. The Medrash says on this idea, the Medrash says, this whole idea of lighting a menorah, it's a strange thing, because like, normally why do you light candles? Because you need, you need light. So the Medrash says, Did Hashem need light? In his, in his Mishkan, he needs... Uh, 40 years they travel in the desert. Where does their light come from? Hashem provides the lights. The pillar of fire that traveled before them. So now he's okay, build me a house. You light me a fire. I don't need your fire. I don't need your light. I got everything that I need without that. So the Medrash has a couple of different approaches to this. One, the Medrash says, the Gemara says, it's Gemara Masech Shabbos and in Masechus Menachos, this is really a testimony to all the people in the world, that the divine presence rests amongst the Jewish people. They would see the menorah, and the light of the menorah would be an edus, would be a testimony that Hashem's presence is amongst us. That's the language that the Gemara uses. I want to share a brief, we're running out of time, but very briefly, Rav Yitzchak Kutner, the great Rosh Hashiva, um, asks, he says, I don't understand. The menorah is going to be testimony to the world that Hashem's presence lives amongst the Jewish people. Who sees the actual menorah? Where was the menorah placed in the Beis HaMikdash? Not in the Kodesh There were three steps. There was the Kodesh HaKadosh, which had the Aron, the Holy of Holies. Only the Kohen Gadol entered there once a year. The room right outside of the Kodesh HaKadosh was known as the Heichal. That had the Mizbeach Hazav, the small golden altar where they burnt incense. It had the Shulchan with the 12 loaves of bread and the menorah. Only Kohanim were allowed to enter into that area. And then outside of that were the courtyards where the big Mizbeach was, where regular Jews could go, assuming they were ritually pure. So not even a regular Jew was allowed into the Heichal to like see up close the menorah. The B'chol Boi Olam, all of all of the people in the world, uh, for sure not. What in the world do the sages mean? That the menorah was going to be a testimony to the entire world that Hashem's presence lives amongst the Jewish people. Who saw it? How was that a testimony to anything? So uh, Rafutner explains, Rafutner explains that sometimes for testimony, you don't have to see the item itself. But if the Kohanim who would be in there would see, and would, so to speak, be themselves lit on fire, spiritually high, spiritually strong, passionate about what they were doing, when the Kohanim then come out, and they have experienced what's inside the Mishkan with the menorah and all that, what happens when you come into contact with somebody who is spiritually on fire, who is passionate? There are certain things that rub off on everybody around you. Passion, passion is one of them. Passion is one of them. 
Um, and if you've ever been at a, there are a couple of examples of this. Sometimes you go to a, a wedding or a, I don't know, somewhere and there's like, by, by like the second round of dancing, like, you know, it's like thinned out and the people who are going around are like just sort of, you know, mosing around and all sort of like, there's not much energy. And then like one guy just shows up who hadn't been there already for three hours. One person comes and like, they, were, had a, they had another event, they just showed up and it's like, they're so excited. Like everyone else are like, I know we did that, we've been there, we've been excited for three hours, like and I'm just ready to eat dessert and go home. But now one new person comes who's like, oh, for Brent. What happens to that circle when that one person comes and they're like, oh, they're moving around, they're, they're, got all their, they're yelling, they're screaming. Like, you know, everybody. I, I've seen it on, on sports teams, you've ever seen it on a, on a basketball floor? There's like that one guy who cares more than everybody else. And when he's not playing, so everybody else is doing their thing. But if there's one guy in the team who is fired up, right? He's passionate. He cares. He's yelling. He's screaming. He's in everybody's face. What happens to everybody else on the team? You feed off of it. So Futner says there's a spiritual component to that. A Kohen is inside that Heichel. He's, he's a step away from the Holy of Holies. He's in front of the menorah. He sees the fire of the menorah. He sees the Mizbeach Hazav, where they burnt the incense and the 12 loaves of bread. And that Kohen comes out. He's ready to serve his people. And when, uh, when the Jewish people are led by Kohanim, who understand the concept of being lit on fire, in the same way, that's how you light the menorah. I light it so that that one's on fire. The Kohen then comes out, and he's, he's passionate about everything that's going on. And that spreads, and it's an edus to a degree that the Jewish people become a testimony that Hashem's presence dwells amongst us because we, the Kohen spreads out to us, and then we spread out everywhere where we are. And when we're doing the right thing, every single person in the world who comes across a Jew who lives with morality and with the ethics and with the passion and with the conviction they're like, what's different? What, what's with these people? Shem's presence is part of this people. That's the testimony, that there's something different, that there's something that's uplifting, there's something excited, there's something passionate. And you don't have to actually see the menorah, you just have to see the people who saw the people who saw it because it spreads like fire and it warms like fire. And that's, that's the people we're supposed to be. Halavai, we should get there. Uh, the Karov, in which the world, right now, Hashem has set it up, He's like ready for us. Because He set it up where the whole world is watching us right now. The whole world is talking about the land of Israel, the whole world is talking about the people of Israel. Everybody, it's on everybody's radar screen. So now we just need to do our role and make sure that when they're talking about us, they're talking about a people who are passionate and committed to the morality, to the ethics, and to spirituality, and to godliness, and to being the kinds of people that we're supposed to be. And then the whole world will say, this is a people that has Hashem in its midst, Edus, it's a testimony through the menorah, the fire of the menorah, to everybody who comes into uh, contact with it. All right, have a great uh, day.